you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Aspen Daily News. My name is Greg Stewart. Battle over the field's development centers on three points. Opponents group takes aim at Eagle County Staff Review. Article by Scott Condon from the Tuesday, February 21 edition of Aspen Daily News Online. When a controversial Mid-Valley development proposal called The Fields returns to the Eagle County Commissioners for review today, that would have been last Tuesday for our listeners, the county staff will find itself in an unusually hot seat. On the one hand, the developer has touted the findings of the planning staff that the proposal complies with county codes and standards, as well as the staff's recommendation for approval. On the other hand, opponents of the plan contend the review by the county's planning and engineering staffs was flawed in three key areas. They say the project should be denied. The three county commissioners will be forced to sort it out. The Fields is a proposal for up to 135 residences on 19.39 acres along Valley Road west of Crown Mountain Park. The developer proposed to place deed restrictions on 25% of the units. Another 15% would have a residential occupied designation which doesn't limit sales prices or rents but requires occupants to be year-round full-time residents. The property is across Highway 82 from Blue Lake Subdivision. The current plan was submitted for review in December of 2020. Three key battlefronts have opened up. They are whether or not the development should uh, rather is compatible with surrounding neighborhoods, whether or not a public trail from the fields to nearby public amenities is feasible, and whether or not new traffic would overwhelm areas, roads, and intersections. The development group, uh, fronted by Even Schreiber, needs a zoning change from rural residential to residential family, rather residential multifamily, to make it work. The field site is currently zoned for one unit per two acres for a total of nine residences. The development team says its proposal for seven units per acre is consistent with the Eagle County's 2018 Future Land Maps vision for the area. One criteria for a zoning change is compatibility with the surrounding neighborhood. A group of neighbors uh, that live within a half mile of the fields says the upzoning wouldn't honor Eagle County's intent to reduce development density as it moves further away from the Elgebel Corps. Jen Mueller submitted comments to the county on behalf of the group. She contends that the fields is too dense as proposed. Summit Vista, a subdivision to the east, has 2.54 dwellings units per uh, acre, even though it is zoned for seven per acre. The Arlian Ranch, uh, A-R-L-I-A-N Ranch, to the rest of the fields has 0.24 dwellings per acre, the opponents noted, and it is zoned for one unit acre. Blue Lake subdivision across the highway has 1.31 dwellings per unit per acre, though it is zoned for seven units per acre. The development is way too dense and would destroy the harmonious step-down density that currently exists as you go from east to west, from the commercial core to agriculture land. 
Mueller wrote. The group is, uh, has also criticized the county planning staff for its finding that the field is compatible. The staff memo for a December 2022 hearing found that the upzoning was warranted because it is, quote, compatible with the type, intensity, character, and scale of existing and permissible land use uh, surrounding the subject property. This staff's justification for the finding focuses on the fact that the fields and neighboring homeowners to the west are members of the Arlian Ditch Co. Mueller wrote to the county that the compatibility litmus test must be more sophisticated. Compatibility with surrounding uses has nothing to do with ditch water rights and uses, Mueller wrote. Eagle County declined comment on the criticism of its review. The public information officer, uh, rather office, said it is county policy to not comment on active land use files outside of public documents and meetings. Mueller's group also took aim at the county staff's review of the proposed trail linking the fields to Crown Mountain Park and the Roaring Fork Transportation Authority bus stop near the intersection of Highway 82 and Elgebel Road. The developers have proposed the trail as one of the ways they will provide the public benefits needed to justify a rezoning. The developers want to build the trail on the south side of the Valley Road because wide open spaces would allow easier trail construction. There's one hitch. The land, u- the, rather, the land is currently owned by the U.S. Forest Service, which is engaged in a long tedious process that could result in the sale of the property to Eagle and Pitkin counties. The timing of the possible sale is unknown. If the sale doesn't happen, the developers contend they would build the trail on the north side of Valley Road. But Mueller's group contends there is no guarantee the trail could be shoehorned into the right side, rather the north side of the road, because of tree stands, irrigation ditches, and other topographical challenges. They contend the county staff didn't delve into the issues strongly enough. The latest staff review states that the Eagle County Engineering Department reviewed the conceptual plan for a trail on the north side of Valley Road and determined, quote, the pedestrian connection is feasible. But in another part of the review, the county staff says, the existing rights of way will have to be surveyed to ensure that there is adequate space for construction of the pedestrian connection. Mueller's written comments to the county asked, so which one is it? Is it feasible? Or do you still need to get a survey to determine that? Shouldn't this survey be completed before any conclusions as to feasibility are drawn? A third point of contention for the Mueller Group is the county engineering staff's decision to change the methodology for determining if the Highway 82 intersection with Elgebel Road would meet acceptable levels of service after new traffic from the fields. The developer's traffic consultant wanted to use a 24-hour average to traffic, rather of traffic, to determine the future level of service. The county engineering department agreed, even though a 24-hour average isn't typically the standard. This is an obvious example of Eagle County engineering catering to, caving in, and working hand-in-hand with the developer to bend the rules to the detriment of the citizens they serve. Mueller wrote to the county, this cannot 
be tolerated. The development group has committed up to $408,000 in improvements to the intersection. But Mueller's group contends the intersection would not operate at an acceptable level at critical times and, therefore, the upzoning cannot be approved because there isn't adequate infrastructure. The group alleged the problems with the staff go beyond the review of the fields. Other flawed developments have received recommendations for approval because of haphazard staff review, they claimed. We need a referendum to stop or limit development in the Roaring Fork Valley until Eagle County Planning and Engineering staff can demonstrate competence, the group's letter said. We would like to propose a referendum on the ballot, uh, the next ballot imposing a moratorium on all new development projects, with a possible exception for affordable housing, in the Roaring Fork Valley until this problem can be resolved. It's unknown if the referendum issues will be discussed at the field's hearing. The hearing is scheduled, uh, was scheduled to begin at 4 p.m. in the Eagle County Office and Community Center in El Jebel, next to Crown Mountain Park. And now, updated plan says statewide water strain will affect Roaring Fork Watershed. Data. Colorado water demand increasing. Supply shrinking. Article by Austin Corona, special to the Aspen Daily News. The Colorado Water Conservation Board's 2023 water plan shows that Colorado does not have enough water to meet its demand amid a growing population and the worsening effects of climate change. The updated water plan, released last month, is a state document that describes the necessary steps Colorado water managers should take to address existing and future challenges. The pressures described in the water plan will have a direct impact on the Roaring Fork watershed, which exports water to users beyond the Roaring Fork Valley. The plan states that watersheds including the Roaring Fork, could struggle to balance their internal water needs with demands for exported water in other basins and other states. State officials announced the unanimous approval of the updated water plan last month. It outlined steps that the Colorado Water Conservation Board will take to address future challenges in water use, as well as recommending steps for other water managers irrigators, and municipalities. The CWCB originally released the Colorado Water Plan in 2020, rather in 2015, and this year marks its first update. The CWCB will update the plan again in 2033. Data included in the water plan show that Colorado's demand for water will increase while its water supplies diminish in the coming decades. As a water source for communities across Colorado and the West, the Roaring Fork watershed will be subject to pressures far from the valley. Most of Colorado's agriculture and urban development exists in the eastern half of the state, while most of the state's water exists in the West. Colorado's western slope, which includes the Roaring Fork watershed, contains about 80% of the state's water resources, while 80% of the state's population and around 60% of the state's agriculture exists on the eastern slope of the Rockies. These population centers include cities like Denver, Fort Collins, and Colorado Springs.
In order to move water from west to east, water providers pump it under the Continental Divide through tunnels called Trans-Mountain Diversions, or TMDs. The Roaring Fork River and its tributaries supply water for two of the state's five largest TMDs, the Frying Pan Arkansas Project and the Twin Lakes Diversion. During the spring and summer, these projects move about 40% of the water in the Roaring Fork and Frying Pan Rivers headwaters across the Continental Divide for use in the eastern part of the state. Water from the Roaring Fork Valley also gives to users in other states. Nearly two-thirds of the water that falls in Colorado leaves its borders, supplying seven other states in Mexico. Colorado is party to 11 interstate water agreements that oblige it, rather than obligate it, to deliver water to its neighbors. Altogether, the Roaring Fork River provides around one-tenth of the Colorado's river flow, which is critical for Arizona, Nevada, California, and parts of northern New Mexico, rather parts of northern Mexico. Through TMDs, the Roaring Fork watershed also helps Colorado deliver legally ob obligated water to Kansas and the Arkansas River. Heather Tattersall-Lewin, L-E-W-I-N, Director of Science and Policy for the Roaring Fork Conservancy, said that the Roaring Fork watershed is deeply connected to statewide changes in water management, Anything that happens at the state level in water planning impacts our watershed. With water moving downstream into the Colorado River and through trans-mountain diversions or the Front Range, any changes in water policy or planning impact our valley. According to the Water Plan, balancing water exports from the basin with a need to provide for in-basin demands with limited supplies will be a major challenge for the Roaring Fork watershed going forward. This challenge will only grow amid the worsening effects of climate change and population growth in Colorado. Climate change dries soils, speeds up snowmelt, and exacerbates wildfires, increasing the amount of additional water irrigators and ecosystems require to be productive. Experts estimate that total stream flows in the upper Colorado Basin which includes parts of Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, have decreased by about 5% for every basin-wide temperature increase of 1 degree Fahrenheit. In the last century, this has meant a 20% reduction in the Colorado River's annual flow, and the river could lose another 25% in the next 30 years. The basin is currently suffering its driest 22-year period in 1,200 years. Meanwhile, estimates in the water plan foresee Colorado's population growing by nearly one-third in the next 27 years, reaching a total of 7.5 million people in 2050. Much of that growth will occur in the Front Range cities like Denver and Colorado Springs, some of which rely on water pumped across the Continental Divide from the Roaring Fork watershed. While Colorado's per capita water use has fallen in recent years, estimates show that population growth and economic development will increase overall demand for water in the state. Colorado's municipal and industrial water demands are expected to grow by as much as 740,000 acre-feet by the year 2050, 
more than twice the amount of water that can be saved by currently contemplated conservation measures. In order to meet this demand, urban developers likely will continue to acquire water from irrigators, effectively drying farms. Already, stakeholders estimate that existing plans for these water transfers will lead to a roughly 55,000-acre reduction in Colorado's agricultural lands in coming years. Colorado's $47 billion agriculture industry is by far the state's largest water consumer, accounting for about 90% of the annual water use. Municipalities account for 7%, and industrial uses represent 3%. These numbers are generally in line with regional trends, with agriculture representing 80% of water use in the greater Colorado River Basin, which spans seven states and part of northern Mexico. Agriculture represents 13% of the state's GDP and employs 195,000 people. The state's most common crop is hay for feeding livestock. Currently, Colorado already fails to meet one-fifth of its agriculture water demand. The water plan estimates that Colorado will fail to meet more than one-fourth of agricultural water demand in 2050, leaving fields unproductive and dry. The water plan outlines a range of conservation measures for the CWCB and its partners to take that rather and its partners to take that can help the state meet its demands for water. The plan calls on CWCB's partners to invest, invest in storage projects, ponds, reservoirs, and aquifer recharge, water-efficient infrastructure, and water-efficient land-use planning. The plan also details actions that the CWCB will implement along with other state agencies, which include providing funding for water infrastructure, expanding water reuse, helping irrigators to increase agriculture efficiency, and assessing river ecosystem health. The CWCB has committed to facilitating stakeholder discussions for impactful converse conversations on the subject of new or planned TMDs that might put more strain on the Colorado River Basin's water supplies. However, citing ongoing litigation, interstate compact considerations and modeling constraints, CWCB did not include a detailed analysis of TMDs and their effect on water management in the water plan. The CWCB also will continue to provide grants to water projects throughout the state. The program is currently funding a study on the Crystal River, which runs through Carbondale, where water users have already suffered from shortages in recent years. And now, a look at News in Brief. Aspen realizes $1.22 billion in 2022, up 19.3% from 21. The City of Aspen's monthly consumption report for December shows that businesses pulled in $169.6 million in retail and other types of taxable sales in the last month of 2022. That represents a 13.4% increase in sales compared with the same month in 2021. Accommodations led the way with 
$53 million, a 7.1% increase over December 2021's hotel and lodge revenue. Fashion clothing was next in the sales ranking with $22.1 million, a 16.8% gain from the same month a year ago. Restaurants and bars garnered $21.7 million, a 15.5% increase. For the full calendar year, Aspen retailers and other businesses submitted a sales tax report to the city, realized $1.22 billion in sales, a 19.3% increase over 2021. Again, accommodations led the way, with $354.6 million. Restaurants and bars were the next highest category, with $192.7 million, a 24.4% gain. And now, Library to recognize three influential leaders. The Pitkin County Library recognizes and celebrates three highly influential contributors to the library. Genevieve Smith, Kathleen Chandler, and Barbara Smith with a recognition party in the library's Dunaway Community Room from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. on March 1. Again, that meeting place and time, a party in the library's Dunaway Community Room from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. on March 1. Genevieve Smith, Assistant Library Director, has performed her library duties at an exemplary level since 2011 and will step into the top leadership position at Pitkin County Library. Chandler, Pitkin County Librarian since 1979, will transition to retirement over the next few months as she winds up a few projects. Barbara Smith is leaving the library to join family in Montana after serving as a Pitkin County Library board member since 2012. She's been a Valley resident since 1973 and was an Aspen High School art teacher for 31 years. Patrons are invited to stop by the party on March 1 to share encouragement, express their gratitude, and enjoy refreshments. And now, 11th Annual Ski for the Pass generates awareness and funds for the Independence Pass Foundation. More than 90 skiers turned up for a picture-perfect day and skied the groom grade of Lower Independence Pass in the annual Ski for the Pass fundraiser last Sunday. The event, held by the Independence Pass Foundation, started at the winter closure gate east of Aspen and ended seven kilometers later at the turnoff to Lincoln Creek. Perfect conditions for nard heads. IPF Executive Director Karen Teague said in an email, Cold snow, blue wax, beautiful tracks laid by the city of Aspen, and a bonus impromptu barbecue at the finish. She estimated that the event netted about $1,500, mostly from donations above and beyond the $15 entry fee. The event was a classic ski race or just a fun outing, as each participant preferred. Morgan Boyles of Aspen led the men with a time of 39.09. He was followed by David Rasmussen of Carbondale at 39.14 and Colin Osborne of Carbondale at 40.30. Nika Myers of Aspen led the women with a time of 41.56, 
while Phoebe Myers of Aspen was right behind at 42.29. Michaelis Kenny of Snowmass Village came in at 43.37. Sunday was the 11th annual Ski for the Pass. IPF also hosts the popular Ride for the Pass bicycle race, or Fun Ride, each May before Highway 82 opens. The 29th annual Ride for the Pass will take place on Sunday, May 20. IPF's mission is to restore and protect the ecological, historical, and aesthetic integrity of the Independence Pass Corridor and to encourage safety, stewardship, uh, safety, and appreciation of the pass. For more on the organization, go to www.independencepass.org. And now, commentary by Steve Skinner. The Carters, a gift to the world. As I sit to write this column on President's Day in 2023, former President Jimmy Carter is in hospice care. At 98, he's lived longer than any other president. From what I can tell, he hasn't wasted much time. In June of 2015, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter came to the Thunder River Theater in Carbondale for an intimate conversation with Aspen Foundation alum and former Democratic strategist Jim Calloway. The visit was presented by the Roaring Fork Cultural Council, which had been hosting dignitaries and big thinkers at the 200-seat venue. On the day of the event, a column I wrote for this newspaper welcoming the Carters was published, excerpts below. I know that they read my column because President Carter graciously sent a personal note along via Jim Colloway expressing his thanks. Since 2015, Jimmy and his wife have lived a purposeful life dedicated to community service well into his 90s. You would see pictures of Jimmy Carter pitching in on a Habitat for Humanity build. Since I don't think we will meet in person, I want to take this moment to say welcome, 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 and thank you for giving so much of yourself to make the world a better place. While other former presidents are coloring or raking in huge cash from speeches, you two are out there fighting waterborne diseases, building housing for the needy, and waging peace. I voted for you, and I think you were a great president. Many do not see it that way. Maybe people were bored because you did not take us to war. You were into banning assault weapons and having mandatory background checks for gun purchases. I'm sure you lost some support over those radical notions. See how much better off we are without restrictions? We have unlimited firearm freedom and can't even talk about limiting the amount of bullets a nut can cram into a magazine. You are ahead of your time when it comes to politics and common sense. In 1977, you responded to the energy crisis by installing solar panels on the White House and wearing a sweater instead of turning up the heat. Sorry to say, those solar water heaters have been removed, and now we are cooking again with gas. We learned a lot from that energy crisis. We started driving little gas-sipping cars like the Ford Pinto, and even developed an electric car. 
The electric cars were removed from the roads and crushed under the wheels of the oil barons. But the sentiment was right on. Forty years later, electric cars are making a comeback. You created the Department of Energy and the Department of Education. Texas Governor Rick Perry wants to get rid of the Department of Education. The DOE didn't work for him, so it must be dismantled. I appreciate your work for Habitat for Humanity. A hand up, not a hand out. Even in the valley of the rich and beautiful, we find that there are people in need. Habitat for Humanity is building homes right here in Carbondale, and that project is saving lives and changing lives, so thank you. Not many people know this, but your support of the small batch beer industry really turned out, rather turned our nation around. In 1979, you removed onerous restrictions on the sale of malt, hops, and yeast that had been in place since Prohibition in 1920. As a result, home brewers figured out how to make everything from dandelion porter to raspberry stout. By 2012, we had more than 2,000 breweries and brew pubs in the state, and I'm sure that number has probably doubled by now. If I could, I'd take you to the Carbondale Beer Works or the Roaring Fork Beer Company and buy you a Colorado handcrafted small batch cold one. Tell you want, I will toast you at my next opportunity. Again, that was, tell you what, I'll toast you at my next opportunity. In 1982, you founded the Carter Center to advance human rights and alleviate human suffering. Thank you. Your efforts to eradicate guinea worm disease are to be applauded by providing millions of impoverished people with a simple filter. Insistence of the disease have been reduced from over 3 million annually to less than 200 in 2013. It's the first parasitic disease to be all but eliminated without the use of drugs or vaccines. Way to go. And Rosalind, you are no slouch either. Your work on behalf of women and the mentally ill has lasted, has lasting impacts the world over. Your efforts to force insurance companies to treat mental issues as well as physical maladies has undoubtedly saved thousands of lives and millions of dollars. You will share the stage with your husband tonight, just as you have all along. When I stand and applaud, it will be for you both. A heartfelt thanks also needs to be extended to Carbondale's Jim Calloway for making this visit possible. Like you, Jim has given a lot of his life and wealth to worthy causes and has made a world of difference with his local efforts. I'm not surprised that Jim knows Jimmy and that you are still connected. Carbondale is a better place because of Jim, and now we have Jimmy, too. The Carters are a gift to the world. Reach Steve Skinner at moogzuki at gmail.com. And now, more reporting on the Fields Project from the Wednesday, February 22 edition of Aspen Daily News Online. Mid-Valley's Fields Project facing criticism. Lots of public comment. Eagle Commissioners 
deliberate into the night. Article by Scott Condon. A controversial Mid-Valley development proposal called The Fields faced widespread opposition during a public hearing on Tuesday. Its fate remained uncertain after nearly four hours of discussion and public comment. Commissioners heard from more than 30 speakers in a hearing in Elgerbell. Opponents outweighed supporters by more than three to one. Roughly 23 people spoke against the project, while seven spoke in favor. Scores more Mid-Valley residents attended but didn't speak. The commissioners started deliberations after the public hearing, but, but ultimately decided to table the discussion until March 21 to give their planning staff an opportunity to collect more information. Frustration with the level of developments in the Wrong Fork Valley bubbled over in the comments of most opposing speakers. A common theme was development has outpaced infrastructure upgrades. Numerous speakers complained about growing gridlock on Highway 82. We're creating a monster. We can't fix it with more traffic lights, said Missouri Heights resident Susie Ellison. People contended the project, rather the project, won't add enough affordable housing to dent the shortage, and it will create additional high-priced second homes. There is no public benefit if the overall result is negative, said Project Foe Todd Hartley of Basalt. Catherine Brock, a fourth-generation Eagle County resident and a teacher in the Valley, supports the fields because it gives a person like her a chance to own housing in the Valley. The Fields Development Group is proposing up to 135 residences, with 25% of the units price-controlled affordable housing and another 15% with a designation that occupants must be Roaring Fork Valley residents. The project is located off of Valley Road, west of Crown Mountain Park. It is across Highway 82 from Blue Lake Subdivision. Evan Schreiber, the face of the development group, contended there is a silent majority that supports the project despite overwhelming opposition in written and spoken public comments. He said the project, project is compatible with Eagle County's various land use plans, which envision greater density at the 19-acre site. Schreiber's team also played up Colorado Governor Jared Polis's call for more affordable housing in the state. Polis said in his State of the State address last month that streamlining regulations to encourage more affordable housing would be a priority of his next four-year term. The project requires an upzoning from county commissioners. Foes said the requested upzoning to seven dwellings units per acre would make it more dense than surrounding neighborhoods. Former Basalt Town Councilman Bernie Grauer urged the commissioners to put the project to a voter referendum or have the county conduct a scientific survey to gauge the sentiments of Mid-Valley residents. Most residents want slow growth emphasizing affordable housing, Grauer said. Of the 54 affordable housing units proposed by the developers, 34 would have deed restrictions on sales or rental prices. The other 20 units would be designated as resident-occupied with no restrictions on sale prices or rents, but a requirement that occupants be full-time Valley residents. Grauer said those 20 resident-occupied units are fake affordable housing because the prices could be so high.
We need more affordable housing, not multi-million dollar homes, Grauer said. Affordable housing advocate Gail Schwartz said she wasn't in favor or opposed to the fields, but felt bold action by local governments on a regional level is needed to make a dent in the affordable housing crisis. Schwartz is the president of Habitat for Humanity, Roaring Fork. She said, even if 40% of the housing units at the fields are affordable, that leaves 60% that aren't. She suggested the commissioners could and should request more affordable housing from the fields. It's not a taking to ask. Rather, it's not a taking to ask for more from a new development, she said. In the bigger picture, Schwartz said second home development is dominating the economy and forcing working people further and further away. The affordable crisis has grown so bad that it threatens to cripple the region, she added. We're going to lose our community. We're going to lose our economy if we don't step up, Schwartz said. Continuing with local news, Pitco releases names of FBO applicants. Pitkin County has received seven proposals from companies interested in being the next fixed base operator or FBO at the Aspen Pitkin County Airport. According to a news release issued Tuesday morning, the companies are Atlantic Aviation, the current FBO whose long-term lease expires September 30, Fontainebleau Aviation, Jet Aviation, Modern Aviation, Odyssey Aviation, Signature Flight Support, and Sonoma Aviation. They are all vying for the lucrative multi-year contract of serving and managing non-commercial aircraft operations starting October 1. The deadline to submit responses to the county's request for proposals closed last Thursday at 2 p.m. A review committee, led by the county's procurement office, will meet for a first discussion of the proposals on Friday, the release says, the review committee also is being referred to as the selection committee. While the committee is expected to vet the proposals and make recommendations, the Pitkin Board of County Commissioners will have the ultimate decision on the contract. The county's goal, as written in its RFP, is to select a qualified respondent to develop, construct, operate, maintain, and manage first-class, state-of-the-art FBO facilities and services at the airport. The review, or selection committee, consists of these voting members. Dan Martholomew, airport director. Rich Engelhart, deputy county manager. G.R. Fielding, county engineering and construction director. Diane Jackson, airport deputy director. Brad Jacobson, of Jacobson Daniels, layout plan consultant. Clint Kinney, ex-officio airport advisory board member. Even Marks, county financial advisory board member. Liz Woods, county deputy finance director. Non-voting members are Chris Davis, county procurement manager. John Eli, county attorney 
And now, Aspen Skiing Company Hospitality Division acquires interest in Hotel Bourne in Denver. Will be converted later this year to Limelight Denver. Aspen Skiing Company's Hotel Division has acquired an interest in the Hotel Bourne in Denver and will work with its new partner to convert the property to part of its Limelight brand. Aspen Hospitality acquired the interest in Hotel Bourne from Continuum Partners, LLC, a Denver-based real estate developer that specializes in building urban mixed-use projects. The hotel will be converted to Limelight Aspen in 2023, and the property will be operated by Aspen Hospitality, the organization said in a joint news release. Hotel Bourne will continue to operate as usual until the conversion to Limelight occurs, with the partners ensuring a seamless transition for hotel staff and booked guests, the release says. The Hotel Bourne opened at 1600 Wawata Street near Union Station in 2017. It has 200 rooms, including 40 suites. All rooms will be updated in conjunction with the transition to the Limelight brand. The hotel has 14,000 square feet of meeting space and a restaurant which, quote, may be reconcepted as part of the conversion, the news release says. When the transition is complete, Limelight Denver will join Aspen Hospitality's growing Limelight portfolio, which includes Limelight Aspen, Lime, uh, Limelight Snowmass, and Limelight Ketchum, with additional hotels slated to open in Boulder, Colorado, and Mammoth, California. With Limelight Denver, we are excited to expand our brand beyond mountain and ski locations into an urban market. Alineo Azevado, CEO of, of Aspen Hospitality, said in a prepared statement, The Limelight portfolio has become synonymous with community and adventure making Denver a natural fit for the brand. The city is a launch point for many guests who come to experience Colorado's great outdoors, and we're thrilled to embrace the local character of this market as we move into our next chapter of growth. And now, reading from the Thursday, February 23 edition of Aspen Daily News Online, parents grateful for response to Aspen school shooting threat want better communication, info relay, left some parents worried this was really happening. Article by Scott Condon. Parents were relieved that a threat of an active shooter at the Aspen Public Schools was a hoax Wednesday, but the frightening event had them calling for improvements in the way the school district and law enforcement agencies disperse information. There are so many lessons to be learned in Crisis Communication 101, said Natalie Travers the parent of a kindergartner at Aspen Elementary School. The communication pattern left parents dealing with a whole slew of rumors for an hour, Trevor said. If I was someone who tended toward panic, that would have been excruciating. Even without panic, she acknowledged that she wondered, is this valid? What am I supposed to do? Travers credited her child's teacher with sending an email at 9.18 a.m. informing parents they were safe in their room. Later instructions from the school district on picking up their children was jumbled, she said. 
Parents said they were grateful for the way the schools kept their kids safe during the lockdown and for the response of the Pitkin County Sheriff's Office and other law enforcement agencies, which conducted a sweep of the schools and made sure the shooter wasn't on campus. But some parents were critical of the way information came out about the event and the amount of time that passed before parents were informed their children were safe. There was about a 25-minute period where I truly believed that this was really happening, said the parent of a boy at the elementary school. The parent didn't want to be identified out of concern for affecting relationships with school and law enforcement officials. The parent experienced pure terror that brought him to tears because of the epidemic of mass shootings in the U.S. in recent years. My only question would uh, would be, was the communication handled appropriately in a number of ways, the parent asked. Aspen Superintendent David Bow and Pitkin County Undersheriff Alex Bruschetta acknowledged during a press conference Wednesday that communication could have been better and improvements would be discussed during a debriefing they plan to hold on the incident. In an incident like this, Communication is really difficult, and we're trying to get accurate information in real time to parents and to our staff. Bao said initial reports suggested that communication is something we're going to be addressing vigorously this afternoon during the debriefing to speed up the accuracy and timing of communications as well as responsibility for who says what and when. What is important, Bao said, is school officials and law enforcement acted to keep the kids safe against the potential threat. At this point in time, I think it's safe to say from talking with a number of leaders in the room that with our first responders, it was a textbook response. It was phenomenal, Bao said. Rochetta said traffic management was another area that will be examined. From the law enforcement perspective, there are always opportunities for improvement even if an event or incident goes as well as you could have expected it to go, he said. There's always something we could tweak to make it better. I think the lessons learned is probably uh, a more robust traffic management plan to address the influx of vehicles that would be ar arriving at the schools. But to David's point, any incident that I have ever worked on, communication is always an opportunity for improvement. So I think we're looking forward to taking a deeper dive and really fleshing out that communication piece. The shooting threat was made at 8.25 a.m. by a caller to the Pitkin County Emergency Dispatch Center. The caller said they were, quote, walking into the school to shoot all the kids, unquote. Bruschetta said, this was an extremely disturbing statement, and the emergency dispatcher uh, engaged the caller in line with their training, but the caller refused to give any further information. A school resource officer notified school administration about the threat, and all three schools went into lockdown. Students were whisked into rooms by teachers and administrators. Lights were turned off, and they hid as best they could. Meanwhile, Pitkin County deputy sheriffs and assisting agencies from the valley had officers sweep the school to check for a shooter and make sure students were safe. The schools held a lockdown drill the day before to practice a similar scenario. The Aspen Elementary School sent an email to parents at 8.55 a.m. titled, 
ASD on lockdown that raised questions rather than providing answers. The Aspen School District is in a lockdown, the email said. We received notification of this approximately 20 minutes ago. Police are pre present and searching the Aspen Elementary School. Student and staffs uh, and staff are following all standard response protocols. We do not have further information at this time and will keep you informed as we are able. Around the same time, the Sheriff's Office posted a comment on its Facebook page that fueled some parents' anxiety. Quote, local law enforcement agencies are responding to the Aspen School District for unconfirmed reports of shots fired at the Aspen Elementary School. The post began. Officers are going through all Aspen School District schools to ensure the safety of all students and staff. Aspen Elementary School has been cleared and students are safe inside their classrooms. Parents are advised to not come to the school to pick up your children at this time. The Pitkin Alert system wasn't utilized until 10.20 a.m. to notify the community at large about the status of the event. All Aspen School District schools are cleared of the threat, the alert read. Bao said better communication was needed across agencies and within departments at the school. We're going to work on notification and who gets what, when, as well as communication flow. Burchetta indicated it wasn't necessary, necessarily appropriate to use a Pitkin alert for an update on the situation. Our work there, we do here with the schools is in partnership with the school district and we rely heavily on them, Bruschetta said. We also recognize that the communication that comes from public safety entities involved is really public safety minded. It's really geared toward mass notification to the entire community as a whole as opposed to a specific group such as parents or other individuals. That said, we rely on our partnership and we collaborate with David and his group to message directly to the parent group from the schools. Pitkin County regularly urges residents and visitors to sign up for Pitkin Alerts to stay informed on a variety of topics. The notifications come via text, email, or both. It is touted as a potentially life-saving tool in the case of wildfires or other natural disasters. However, the alert system is routinely used for a variety of topics that aren't life-threatening or of general interest. For example, a Pitkin alert went out at 6.44 a.m. Wednesday about the chain law be being in effect for commercial vehicles in Snowmass Village because of snow. Regular alerts are also set when day skier lots are filled in snow mass as well. While official communication channels went cold Wednesday morning, uh, social media exploded. That added anxiety to the terror-stricken parents, according to the elementary school parent who didn't want to be named. Prominent members of the community cited the shots fired post from the sheriff's office on their own post, but failed to mention it was an unconfirmed report. The communication breakdown continued after the schools had been cleared and parents were eager to pick up their kids. Travers said she received a notification that parents may pick up their kids when it should have said parents must pick up their kids.
She made her way to the school campus, negotiating slow-moving traffic that matched Aspen's worst delays. An extraordinary amount of traffic was headed through the roundabout to the schools while commuters were trying to get into town. The school district initially said all students should be picked up at the Buttermilk parking lot. Firefighters stationed at the roundabout advised drivers that all parents should go to Buttermilk. That directive was later rescinded by the school district. Only students who were on buses that hadn't arrived at the schools by the time the lockdown had been directed to the Buttermilk parking lot. After heading toward Buttermilk, Travers learned of the miscommunication, turned around, and eventually made it to the school. She said her child seems to be unfazed by the incident. Perhaps the drill the day before prepared the students for a real lockdown, she said. She explained to her daughter that Wednesday's incident wasn't just a drill. She knows more than she should as a five-year-old, Travers said. The other parent said his elementary school child also seemed to be coping with the incident well, despite seeing police with guns and helmets checking out the school. He said, at first, we didn't know if it was an animal or a bad person at the school, the parent said. They told us it was a bad person. Both the parent and Travers said they believed school personnel handled the lockdown part of the incident well. You much, much prefer it's a hoax than the real thing, the parent said. Travers said she trusts the schools to take the right action. Now they just need to improve their communication so parents' trust doesn't erode. I'm grateful this was a false alarm. And this was a test run, she said. Bow said school counselors and staff are available at each of the schools to help with any students troubled by the incident. The school district is also hosting a meeting for parents and law enforcement officials Thursday at 5 p.m. That would have been yesterday, or Thursday, last Thursday for our listeners, in the district theater and is urging parents to fill out a lockdown feedback form. It's not an easy time to be in schools, Bao said at Wednesday's press conference in reference to school shootings. Thank you for joining us for Aspen Daily News. My name is Greg Stewart. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the Broomfield Community Foundation. Broomfield's leading partner and voice for philanthropy since 1993. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.